Cameron, I'm Emma, and I'll be doing the Bible reading. This is from Ezekiel 1, chapters 1 to 28, and also 2 from 1 to 7. In my 30th year, in the fourth month on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kibar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was on him. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The centre of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead, they did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox, each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. They each had two wings spreading out upward, each wing touching that of the creature on each side, and each had two other wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fires or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not change direction as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved, and when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was also was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose, yeah, the wheels rose along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures, was what looked like looked something like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. Under the vault, their wings were stretched out one toward the other, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the vault over their heads, as they stood with lowered wings. Above the vault over their heads was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli, and high above on the throne was a figure that, like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. He said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet, and I will speak to you. As he spoke, 
The Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. He said, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors, ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious people, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid. Through briars and thorns, though briars and thorns are all around you, and you live among scorpions, do not be afraid of what they say or be terrified by them, though they are a rebellious people. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. G'day. It's good to be with you. And I hope you can keep that uh, newsletter open with a passage and an outline. I've got a question for you to think about as we start. What would you do if you met God? If God appeared to you, what would be your reaction? What would you talk about? What, what would you do if you met God? Just talk to the person next to you while I get set up. Hey, what was, what was the best one between the two of you, or three of you? Ask for a car. Ask for a car. What sort? <laughs> Maserati? No. <laughs> yeah? <coughs> Any others? You'd be gobsmacked, would you? Nothing to say. Can't believe it. You certainly talked. <laughs> You'd be afraid. Okay. That's very different, isn't it? Ask for a car, that's no fear. Isaac, <laughs> I'd be afraid. Yeah, I was actually thinking something like, oh, I'd probably melt or something. Melt. <laughs> okay. Well, in Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel meets God. But just before we look at how Ezekiel, what he sees and how he responds, I want to play you a little video of a guy called Stephen Fry. Some of you may know of Stephen Fry. Uh, this is his answer. Suppose what Oscar believed in as he died, in spite of your protestations, suppose it's all true, and you walk up to the prayer gates and you are confronted by God. What would Stephen Fry say to him, her, or it? I will basically, that is the obviously, I think, I, I'll say, both cats and children? I'll say that. How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that it is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I'd say. You think you're going to get in? I don't like But I don't want to. I wouldn't want to get in on his terms. They're wrong. Now, if I died and it was, it was Pluto, Hades, and if it was the 12 Greek gods, then I would have more trouble because the Greeks were, they didn't pretend not to be human in their appetites and in their capriciousness and in their unreasonableness. They didn't present themselves as being all seeing, all wise, all kind, all beneficent. Because the God who created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac 
utter maniac. Totally selfish. Totally. We have to spend our life on our knees thanking What kind of God would do that? Yes, the world is very splendid, but it also has in it insects whose whole life cycle is to burrow into the eyes of children, make them blind. They eat outwards from the eyes. Why? Why did you do that to us? You could easily have made Uh, I need to find another. Uh... Okay, well, there's Stephen Fry. He had some questions for God, if he ever met God, and whatever God answers, his answers would be unacceptable. And that video, as you can imagine, went viral and is still going viral. Struck a chord for many people. Well, Ezekiel meets God. And over the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at this Old Testament book of Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel's got 48 chapters. We've only got five weeks. We're not going to read the whole thing. But it actually quite neatly breaks into about five sections. And we're going to cherry pick a significant chapter out of each section um, and open that up and see what the main message of this book is for the people of its day and for us as well. But I think for many of us, being the Old Testament, being a prophet, being somebody almost unknown to us like Ezekiel, it's a different world. We're not familiar with it. It's still part of that our Bibles where the the pages stick together because they've never been opened. It's Old Testament, it's prophets, and it's one of the big prophets that you just can't get your head around. So it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be thrilling. It's going to be worthwhile. We go back about two and a half millennium, 2,600 years ago. And if we ask the question, when... Well, here's a bit of a timeline of the Old Testament. It may seem a little jiggly-jaggly, but let me take you through it quickly. The Old Testament starts with creation. God makes a world. He, he makes humans to rule the world. But it goes pear-shaped pretty quickly, doesn't it? Because the original humans decide they want to be God. They want to do it their way. And everything goes wrong. But almost as quickly, God reveals what his plans and purposes are to put things right. He makes promises to Abraham. This is about 2000 BC. He says to Abram, his name at that stage, leave, go to the land I'll show you. I'll make you into a great nation and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Amazing promises that reveal a plan of God that you could sort of picture this way. God is going to bless Abram with offspring and relationship and land for them to live in. God's people living in God's land, enjoying the blessings of God's rule. But it's not going to just stop with that nation. It's going to go to all peoples, all the nations of the world. So back to our timeline. God made those promises. And things start to go up and up. Abram, who has no kids at that stage, finally has children. And that son has a couple of kids. And the the nation starts to grow very slowly. Eventually they start breeding like rabbits and become a nation. Things are a little bit wrong for a while. They're slaves in Egypt. But that actually helps to create this nation in a relationship with God, rescued out of slavery under Moses, taken to to Mount Sinai, given the covenant and making covenant with God. And they continue to blossom from there. They conquer the land. They have a place to, to call home. And gradually become the greatest nation of their part of the world under King David and Solomon. God's promises reach 
a, a, a real physical uh, material fulfilment. But then it starts to go wrong again. The kingdom splits as soon as Solomon dies. Northern bulk of it, called Israel, just to confuse you, lasts a couple of hundred years, but then the Assyrians tramp in, smash it to pieces. It's never seen again. The southern two tribes, called Judah, they last a bit longer, but it's not a good story. Despite a couple of great guys like Hezekiah and Josiah, the rest of the kings and the people are just like Israel, the northern tribes. And in 597, the Babylonians stomp in, trample all over Jerusalem and take people into exile in Babylon. And that's what we find in Ezekiel chapter 1. In my 30th year, in the fourth month of the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River in Babylon. That's where he is. Now, just to zoom in a bit on that particular part of it, Judah, the southern two tribes, 597, Jerusalem is conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, Babylonian king, and his sort of policy, the way he kept his conquered nations under control, was to cart off the cream, all those who could mount any sort of revolt, back to Babylon so they were under his nose and under his thumb. They couldn't do a thing. And King Jehoiachin is one of those, and so is Ezekiel. He's one of those carted off to Babylon. And it's in Babylon that Ezekiel has this vision by the Kibar River, by the canal of Kibar. Don't think waterside mansions with the, the canal. Uh, think township, think slum down by an irrigation canal. These are under the thumb of the Babylonians, completely and utterly. Now, 587, 10 years later, the puppet king left in Jerusalem. He has a bit of a go at, at, at uh, revolting against uh, Babylon. And this time, Nebuchadnezzar comes down with everything. Jerusalem as a city is totally destroyed. The temple in Jerusalem, where God, in a sense, lived on planet Earth, was razed to the ground. Nothing left. And more were carted off into exile in Babylon. And that's the period of history we're in. The where has to do with where Babylon is. Can you see where Jerusalem is, Judah? Well, Ezekiel's among those carted up and across to Babylon. Not to Babylon the city. The Kibar Canal is somewhere near Nippur, if you can see that. They're not in the capital. They're out in the sticks in the desert, just beside an irrigation canal. But that, that's where they are. This was some of the darkest days for Israel, especially for the exiles. Israel was crushed. All those wonderful promises that God had made seemed to mean nothing now. The whole program had been derailed. Israel and her God had proved no match for Babylon and her gods. One punch, and it was, that's all it took. They were down and out. And the who? We're told that Ezekiel is a priest. A priest served in the temple in Jerusalem, thousands of kilometres away. He, he can't do it. And we're told it's his 30th year. That's the year that priests started their service in the temple. But he can't because he's in exile in Babylon. He, a priest in Babylon is totally frustratingly useless. He's like a lawyer in a car workshop. And it's in Babylon, in exile, that Ezekiel the priest meets God. He sees God. He experiences God. And in chapter 1 that we just had read to us, thanks, it was great reading, 
Ezekiel gradually tells us more and more of what he sees. And his eyes sort of, uh, they, they go inward to see more, then they go upward to take in everything that he sees. And he shares that with us. And as I describe it to you, I want you to try, I want you to try and imagine if you can. The first thing that strikes him is it's something like a storm, lightning and thunder and wind blowing everywhere. Now, in that world, without dynamite and atomic bombs, the most powerful thing you ever experienced was a storm like this. And it's still a bit like that, isn't it? The hurricanes that have swept through the Caribbean in the last couple of months, uh, they're awesome. They're scary. They're absolutely frightening for anybody in the path. And it's full of light. It's, it's like fire just keeps burning and burning, but it, 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 it emanates light, not heat. Everything is radiant and gleaming. You need sunglasses to cope with the brightness of it all that radiates out continually. And there's four living things there in the middle of it. They're sort of mainly human, standing up, although they've got bovine hoofs. And their heads have got four faces, a human face on the front and a lion and an ox and an eagle on the back. We know from ancient literature that the ox was seen as the greatest of the domesticated animals, the eagle the greatest of the birds of the air, the lion the greatest of the wild animals, and humans the greatest of all. And there's four of them, like the four corners of the world, the four points of the compass. This is all earthly, creaturely power embodied in these four creatures. They have wings, but they also have wheels. And I'm not quite sure how to imagine the wheels, but he says there's wheels spinning within wheels, like some of those uh, sports cars that have wheels and then they have the rims sort of go round and round within the wheels. It's something like that. They can go in any direction. They, it, it, it's about movement and mobility. It moves speedily everywhere it wants to go. And the wheels have eyes all around the rims. Wherever it goes, it sees everything that happens. And the four living things, though, aren't actually what this appearance of God is about. They support a huge ice-like platform above their heads. They transport that platform around. And on top of the platform, high above it, there's a throne. A throne fit for the king of all kings. And on the throne... There's a radiant figure, vaguely resembling a human shape, but much more majestic and glorious than ever human, any human could ever be. And Ezekiel tells us, this is the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. Notice it's sort of cautious. He doesn't say, yeah, I saw God. No, it's the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. It's a bit indirect because God is beyond his comprehension and his imagination. This is just an impression of God. What's this telling us? What's this vision of God? What's this experience of God? Well, it's telling us that Yahweh, the God of Israel, really is God. He's omnipotent. He has all power. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's holy through and through. He's ruling in sovereign power. But when you say it like that, it's sort of boring, isn't it? They're just sort of words. Omnipotent. Omnipresent. Omniscient. Now, this is much better, isn't it? It it gives you a picture. It it involves your imagination. You imagine something of the glory and wonder of the majesty 
of God, enthroned high above all creaturely power, unrivaled in power and majesty. He is light and in him is no darkness at all. It may only be the likeness of the glory of God, but it's more impressive than anything I've ever seen in my life. I've lived a bit longer than you, but I still haven't seen anything more impressive than this. And this is only the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. Can you imagine what God himself is like? And when Ezekiel sees the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God, what does he do? Does he question God about cancer? Does he ask why his chips were soggy last night? Does he ask for a car? No, he falls face down at just the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. Imagine what he'd do if he actually met God directly. When Stephen Fry meets God, he won't be asking God questions. He won't be accusing God of being anything much. He won't be sitting in judgment on his creator. He will fall face down in the light of God's holiness and majesty and power and knowledge. Knowing that God is his judge. He's not God's judge. God is the one who gave him life. He didn't give God life. It's blasphemy. It's the fool who says, God doesn't see. God doesn't know. He sees all. He knows all. And he brings everything and everyone to account to him. Instead of expecting God to listen to me, Ezekiel is to listen to God. And that's how chapter 2 begins. In chapter 2, son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. Ezekiel's got nothing to say. God wants to speak to him. And that's what this appearance of God is all about. That's why God appears to Ezekiel, to get him to listen. Because he's got something to say. He's got lots to say to Ezekiel and through Ezekiel to the people. See, he doesn't have this experience to blow him away. He doesn't have this experience to give him a story to tell his mates and impress them or tell his grandchildren when he gets a bit older. No, this is grabbing Ezekiel by the scruff of the neck and saying, listen, listen to me, says God. And why do we get to hear about Ezekiel's experience? So we can go down to the Swan Canal and wait for a storm and see if God appears to us? No. And we get to hear about it because God is going to speak to Ezekiel. And what he's going to speak to Ezekiel, he wants us to know as well. God is grabbing you and me by the scruff of the neck saying, listen, listen to me. That's why. Keep coming next week. We're going to hear more of what God has to say. And it may not always be pleasant, but it's critical. It's God speaking. But we're not real good at listening, are we? Do you find that? It's partly life is crowded out with all sorts of other stuff, isn't it? The Facebook feed just keeps rolling on and on and on. The clutter, the trivia that just seems to accumulate around my life and my friendships and and my time. And uh, to stop and listen just doesn't seem to happen. But I'll tell you what, if Barack Obama turned up at uni tomorrow, you'd go and listen, wouldn't you? If Taylor Swift came, you'd go and listen. 
If Justin Martin came with his Brownlow medal and all the other medals hanging around his neck, and even though he's the sort of person who's got nothing to say, you'd go and listen, wouldn't you? (laughs) This is God in all his majesty and awe and glory. Will you not listen to him? This is what Hebrews says. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, like Ezekiel, many times in various ways, including appearing to Ezekiel. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory. Remember that vision Ezekiel had, the radiance of the glory of God? Jesus is that. And he came and he spoke to us. He spoke to us with his words. He no longer said, it's said of old, I say to you, says Jesus, to you and to me. And he spoke through his actions, coming and giving his life as an atonement for our sins and rising again to be the Lord of all. God has spoken through his son. So what are we to do? Listen. It's not hard to work it out, is it? Listen to what he says. Uh, Mark chapter 9, you might, you might know the story of Jesus' transfiguration. Remember, for just a moment, for Peter and James and John, the the curtain is pulled back and they see Jesus in his radiant glory. His clothes were white like like soap. It's something that they don't quite know how to describe it. And Peter says, let's build some tents. And we're told he said that because he didn't know what to say, which is sort of right and wrong. And then what does God say? What does the Father say? This is my son. Listen to him. Don't tell him what he's supposed to do. Don't control his life. Listen to him. Let him tell you what he's doing and why he's doing it and why it matters so much. Well, God grabbed Ezekiel's attention and I hope he's grabbed ours. And then in chapter 2 and 3, God speaks to Ezekiel about what he wants him to hear, what he wants him to know, and what he's to do. And it's interesting, we get to overhear all that Ezekiel heard. But in two chapters, Ezekiel never says a word. God speaks all the time. It's all about what he is saying. And he's commissioned by God. Son of man, verse 3, I'm sending you to the Israelites. You're to go and speak to the Israelites, to speak my words to them. Not his words, God's words. And what is he to say? Well, it's very interesting in verse 4. He says, The people I'm sending you to are obstinate, stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And when they listen or fail to listen for the rebellious people, they will know that a prophet has been among them. What's he to say? He's to say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Or in the older translations, thus says the Lord. But there's no content at this point given. Because what's critical is that God is speaking. That's the first thing. They've got to start listening to God. God won't allow Israel to keep pushing God out of their mind, out of their consciousness. They don't want to listen. They're a rebellious and stubborn people. Uh, Verse 3, I'm sending the Israelites to a rebellious nation that's rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people whom I'm sending to you are obstinate and stubborn. They're literally hard-faced. You know, almost like when you're trying to talk to somebody and they're hard-faced. They just won't listen to you. They keep looking elsewhere. 
They don't want to hear what you're saying. Well, that's what Israel is like. But God is determined to keep speaking to them. God's blunt with Ezekiel. It's going to be a tough gig. But he's to speak for the sake of speaking. So Israel can never say, God's not speaking to me. God is speaking to them. And they're to listen. Now Ezekiel is to do more than merely listen and parrot what God tells him. Later in the chapter, he's told, he's given a scroll, which is written on it, of which is written the message that he's to give. And we're told that it's words of lament and mourning and woe. This is no nice, pleasant message. It's a message of judgment. If Israel has been trodden by the jackboot of Babylon, then God's fist is in the jackboot. And Ezekiel is to eat the scroll, to internalise it, to embody the message. And we'll see some of the ways he does that in the next couple of weeks. At first, it's sweet to him. It tastes nice. It's like honey. The privilege of speaking the very words of God. Later, though, we're told it brings him in bitterness. But just as hard as the Israelites are, God is going to make Ezekiel just as hard. Verse 8, I'll make you as unyielding and hardened as they are. I'll make your forehead like the hardest stone, harder than food. Don't be afraid of them or terrified, though they are rebellious. That is, this job as a prophet is going to be like heads butting against each other. Again and again and again. Neither stepping down. You know, like the football matches where they just keep butting each other. And no one will, will give an inch. That's what it's going to be like for Ezekiel. And God's commission concludes... By appointing Ezekiel as a watchman for the people of Israel. And so he's to hear the word that God speaks to him and then warn the people with those words. When God says to a wicked person, you will surely die, and you don't warn them or speak out or dissuade them from their evil ways in order to save their life, that wicked person will die for their sin. But I'll hold you accountable for their blood. You know what a watchman is, don't you? A watchman is somebody you send out when you know that you're under threat to look out for the enemy, to watch for the enemy approaching and warn everybody, to warn the city of the danger. As soon as you see the danger, blast the trumpet horn, send a signal, send an SMS, something, so we can take action. Ezekiel is to sound the warning for the people of Israel that they will die in their sin under the judgment of God unless they turn. He's to persuade them to change their ways. And if they don't, they'll still die for their sins. And if he doesn't warn them, although they still die for their sins, he will carry some culpability. He'll be responsible in part for their condemnation. He's not to shirk his responsibility or sleep on the job. But do you notice something strange about this appointment as a watchman? See, who normally appoints the watchman? It's the city under danger, isn't it? That's who appoints the watchman. Well, who's the danger for Israel? Where's it coming from? It's coming from God. And who appoints the watchman? God appoints the watchman. Don't you find that strange? You know the story of Anzac Day, don't you? The Australian troops in, on their ships off the coast from, from Anzac Cove. The Turks waiting on the hill for them to come. Nobody knows when it's going to happen. They're just waiting and waiting. And under the, the, the darkness of night, the troops approach the beach and they try and get up without being seen. 
Well, this is like the Australian troops on that morning sending somebody ahead to run up the top of the hill and say to all the Turks, they're coming. That's crazy, isn't it? That's bizarre. No one would ever do that. Why would God appoint a watchman to warn the Israelites that he's, that he's coming? Because he takes no pleasure in the death of anyone. Because he would rather they turn and live. Because he loves even his enemies, the rebels, the murderers, the rapists, the idolaters. You might ask, last question we'll ask, are we sent as watchmen, as watchwomen? Well, I don't think we are sent like Ezekiel. Yet if you ask the question, have I as a Christian been told by God that his judgment is coming on rebels? The answer is yes. I've been told that very clearly in many times and many ways. And occasionally in my imagination, I I try and reconstruct what the day of Jesus may play out like. Jesus pictures it as the separation of the sheep and the goats, those who are his and those who are still rebels against him. And amongst the goats, I imagine my own brother and some of my mates from uni and my next door neighbour consigned to hell. And I imagine them seeing me and saying, Tim, why didn't you warn us? Why didn't you say something? And at that point, I'm not quite sure what to say. Maybe I'll just say, well, I, I thought you might be offended. Or I might say, well, I, I sort of tried to once, but you didn't seem in the mood, so I, I just let it go. Or I guess I just never got around to it. Some of you may know of Penn and Teller, magicians. Uh, Penn, the, the tall guy on, on the left, uh, he's an atheist, pretty strident sort of atheist. He said this once in an interview. I always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytise. That is, try and convert him to Christian faith. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think it's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate someone to not proselytise? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe in everlasting life is possible and not tell them? He's got a point, hasn't he? This is an atheist who sees what God is showing Ezekiel and what God is showing us. Well, we've done our time. I'll stop there. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for grabbing our attention. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to take to heart what you say. Amen.